0: Good morning, it's good to see everyone. Well, I can't see you real well. I I finally am trying to get to where I can see again, because for the last five years you've all been blurs when you've been talking to me, if you're up close to me. So now I can sort of see you up close, but now you're all blurry out there. Oh well. Anyway, glad to sort of see you. Um... <laughs> Well, then I... That's a long story. I have my glasses, but then it makes my up-close too blurry. So, one or the other. Glad to be here with you. We've been looking at the letters of 1 Peter for a couple of weeks. Today, the question is, how should a believer behave in this world? And what Peter's going to show us is, what is the conduct of a Christian? How are we supposed to relate to the lost To government, what do we do with our spouses, marriage, bosses, how should the Christian function in society? And Peter knew that this early church, they would have a lot of confusion over these issues. And it's easy to see why that would be true, because the teachings of Christ, the person of Christ, entering into their lives, changed the way They thought about everything and therefore changed the way they acted out about everything. But they didn't have what we have right here. They needed these letters from Peter and Paul and Timothy to direct them into the will of God. And so that is why Peter writes. And uh, he wants them to know you're going to have new attitudes. You're going to have new actions as it relates to marriage and government and how to handle uh, Christians and non-Christians around you. And pretty much everything that Peter had to say would go against everything they naturally wanted to do. And you and I can relate to that even still today. Our sin nature wants to respond in a different way than Christ has called us to. I'm sure when these Christians first came to Christ, they looked at each other and said, now what? What do, what do I do with my unbelieving spouse? What do I do with my harsh master? What do I do with this secular government? How do I handle mistreatment? Do I get involved in this world? Or do I retreat from this world? What would God have me do? So we'll first look at a Christian's conduct as a stranger in this world... And Dad, do you mind getting me a glass of water? Thanks, because I'm having a hard time. Um, Christians are supposed to be different. And so Peter begins by saying, okay, we're going to talk about specific institutions and how we're different in that way, but right now, this is what I'm going to tell you. What's your general behavior out there in the marketplace with lost people all around you? How do you behave while we're still living here Waiting to get there. So look at verse 11 in chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter wants to remind the church, while you're here, you're not just coasting. You're not just waiting for me to return. You're not just biding your time. You don't go about business in the same way. While you wait for me to come, you have a responsibility. On your outline, since we belong to a righteous God, we must conduct ourselves in a righteous manner. The Christian's daily life should display, hey, I've got a relationship with God. And we have a God who is holy. And so I live out a holy lifestyle. And Peter gives them three reasons why they should discipline their lives in this way. You'll notice he calls them strangers again there. We talked about that the first week. And I think he uses that uh, word to connect their righteous behavior today to emotionally connect them with what their righteous behavior will be tomorrow. So living a holy lifestyle will first of all remind us of our heavenly citizenship, and add next to that, and our heavenly Father on your outline, because I left that part out. A holy lifestyle will remind us of our heavenly citizenship and our heavenly Father. When we are behaving... In a righteous way, like God has called us to behave, we think about God. We think about when we're going to be with God. That's what happens when we're behaving as we should. We are reminded of who God is. And some of you may know or maybe had times in your life where you knew God, but you were still living out your old life. And how holy did God seem when you were doing that? And how much were you thinking about your future time with God? Living out holiness reminds us we serve a God who's holy. And one day, that's where I'm going. So I'm going to live that out here while I'm on earth. Secondly, to protect our spiritual devotion. Look at that verse again. He says, when you don't abstain, you will have war Against your soul. That's what sinful desires do. They wage war against our soul. And the reason for that is when you and I come to Christ, we still have a fallen nature. It still exists. It doesn't disappear. It's described in here as sinful desires. Your Bible may say lust of the flesh. And the soul that is saved, we realize, is still threatened by our fallen nature. Still threatened by the desires of the flesh, and I like this quote. This one man wrote. It's kind of uh, Star Warsy. These fleshly lusts are potentially vicious and are, by their very nature, like mutineers, capable of raising an insurrection and waging a campaign against our spiritual devotion. Paul knew what this was about. He experienced this himself, which encourages us. Look on your verse sheet at Romans 7. So I find this law at work, Paul said. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. When we give in to those old desires and urges, we are compromising our devotion to the things of God. And Peter's answer in this verse is abstain. Abstain from that. And that's kind of an unpopular word today. And I know with the whole um, sexual teaching in the schools, and, and there were always organizations, Christian usually, trying to say, what about just teaching abstinence? Ha, ha, ha. That's never going to work. That's been going on for years. I don't know how many of you saw in the news, it's been about a month ago, where they did actually a testing of a school district And lo and behold, the ones that taught abstinence had less pregnancies and the kids were less sexually active. Abstain is a good word. Peter uses it right here. We abstain, and that literally means hold away from your person. Push away those desires that come from your fallen nature. And you and I, In this room, we know what they are personally and we know what things we can get involved in to kind of make them flare up and become those mutineers in our life and we know what things we can do to push them away from us. That's what God calls us to do. Thirdly, we can influence others toward God when we are behaving as God calls us to do. Look at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That is an amazing thing. To think that God can use our behavior to take someone out of a destination toward hell and bring them into a relationship with God. What a privilege. And so we don't want to take that lightly. We can be used by God to bring other people into the kingdom. That's why we abstain from those fleshly desires. And I think what we need to realize is the people that are skeptical can look at our behavior and come to realize it's not that we're so great. It's that there must be something working within us. There must be the Spirit of God to allow us to be who we are. And they're totally right. And so their focus then isn't on us, it's on God. And they humbly realize their sin and their need for God because they see God working in our life. That is a privilege. I thought about my sister here before I was a believer as a young teen. My sister um, Dawn, I've mentioned her before, was um, involved in that she was in the time period of the LSD and, um, you know, lots of drugs. It's just a, a bad time. And that was a lot of her peer group. And she went away to a Young Life camp and came to Christ and came back. And her friends, because she refused to participate in what they were doing, slowly just dropped her. And I can remember my sister, because we shared a room, just crying herself to sleep at night. And I can realize, I could realize as like a 14-year-old, where are her friends? Her friends are gone, and she sort of seems different, and she's willing to be in her bedroom alone, crying, than just doing what her friends are doing. And I know that her obedience was part of what God used to make me desire Him before I knew who He was. God used that and her holy choices there. Peter says, um, if you notice on the end of verse 12 that these people will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That term, the day of visitation, that was an Old Testament phrase that usually meant that that was a special drawing near from God, either for judgment or for mercy. So in this context, if he's talking about judgment, he's talking about the end times when all men will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But most people I studied said they really think the day of visitation Peter's talking about here is when God draws near to us in his mercy and reveals himself to us, makes us aware of our need for him and our repentance and we come to him. So this is all about we're being used so that God can visit the people around us in his mercy and let them know about who he is. That's an exciting thing. We also see in that verse that um, they, were, they were being accused of doing many wrong things, the Christians. There was false slander going around. tells us that in verse 12. So I made a list of what those things might be. I mentioned this the first week. Uh, immorality and incest. This is something Christians were accused of because they would have these agape feasts. They were called love feasts. And the world just ran with that phrase and uh, the non-Christians use that to say this is a time of immorality and incest in this community of people called the Christians. Can you imagine that? Uh, Cannibalism. They heard about their getting together and this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. This is my blood, this cup. Drink this in remembrance of me. Cannibals. The Christians are cannibals. they even accused them of um, you know bringing their children in to partake in cannibalism at some of their meetings together. They were accused of being disloyal to Caesar they were accused of disrupting the slavery system, which was extremely important, and the breaking up of homes. One Roman historian wrote this down that Christians were loathed for their vices now this is Interesting for me to read because they were not in a really spiritual place. If anybody was different, it was them because they were living for God, the Creator, and the rest of the world wasn't. But they had to bring up charges against them. What's the best way a Christian can refute slander and false charges? Their righteous behavior. We can talk till we're blue in the face, but what are people looking at? What we do, how we treat each other, how we live a lifestyle that's set apart from the um, just pagan lifestyles around us. One man said this the best argument for Christianity is the real Christian. That's our job. That's what Peter's telling them right here. That's your job in this world. And when we read that verse, we have to realize there's an underlying truth to all of it. And this is it. We may be strangers in this world, but we are not to hide while we wait for the return of Christ. We may be aliens here, but we are not to isolate ourselves and run away from the darkness that surrounds us. That is not our calling. Our good works have to be light. In a dark world, remember singing that song all the time. Uh, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. But if you think about it, as a kid, I always thought, what is that little light? You know, think about it. the the song really doesn't explain it. So I'd be like, this little light of mine, <laughs> hide it under a bushel? No, I don't know why I wouldn't, but no, I won't do that. <laughs> There's a reason for this little light. It's for the salvation of lost people and the ultimate glory of God. One man wrote this, It is by the loveliness of our daily life and conduct that we must commend Christianity to those who still do not believe. Okay, so here's the question, though, that can be... Rising in the minds of the people reading this letter. Okay, but you're calling me a stranger and an alien in this world, so do I have to obey the rulers of this world? And now Peter gets into, let's look at the different institutions of the world and see what God would say about that. First of all, our conduct as a citizen in this world. It was so fun. Last week, the Eggners and uh, and Ted and I got to go to the Grand Canyon because I'd never been there in my whole life. It's like being on another planet, really. But I learned a lot about the history of the Grand Canyon. One thing that I'd never heard of, which was really interesting, in the early 1900s was when they finally got a train to go to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. So you can imagine, hotels started going up. People started dressing up and getting on the train, coming to the Grand Canyon. It was one of the natural wonders of the world. But as they did that, then they needed workers, and then the workers had children, and so pretty soon they had there along the rim what they called the village of the Grand Canyon, which sounds really neat because it was beautiful. But what I read about it was that there was no government. There was no legal system. There was no authority. They had a school, and they had to put up shop, in a sense. But because there was no authority in their lives, everything was chaos. And pretty soon, the people that would come for their wonderful vacation in the Grand Canyon would be put off by the sight and the smells. They said the odors at the Grand Canyon were horrible because nobody had figured out what to do with anything. So you might put your garbage somewhere, and I might put it somewhere else, and I might burn it in your backyard, and, and I might not shower for two weeks. <laughs> Who's going to say anything to me? And so that the tourists would have to, like, be kept away from the village <laughs> of the Grand Canyon because of its chaos. To me, it was such a visual of what would happen in our world without authority systems and government That's why God placed them here. It would be a chaotic place. Look at verse 13. Here's what Peter wants to tell them. As a citizen, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Does our salvation affect our relationship to the government? Yes. Peter wants them to know that. On your outline, we're commanded to obey every authority instituted among men. And Peter uses the word submit. That means to place yourself under. If you were in the military, they used that word. It meant rank yourself under. Peter uses it in this chapter to put yourself under someone. And if you'll notice, he says... um, every institution. Your Bible could say ordinance, institution, authority. The key word is every, meaning not just civil authorities, but all the rules and authorities and rulers that we come about day to day. Things that we're supposed to do, just even driving here. You had rules that you had to follow to get here today uh, out in the traffic. I don't know if we all follow the rules, but we try. Basically, Peter's saying the rules apply to us. Um, I was visiting a foreign country years ago, and it was very interesting to me. Waiting in line was sort of like an unknown idea, even though it was a very civilized place. And I learned that real quick when I was really hungry every night, because I would get to the you know ending of the buffet line waiting to walk forward. Nobody got behind me ever. You just would run and butt in. I want peas tonight. Whoever was in front of the peas, you pushed them away. You got your peas. I finally realized you had to get pushy or you didn't eat. So I would kind of push my way in the buffet line. It was real obvious to me I was in an elevator by myself and there was one man in there. Okay, so picture the elevator. He's already in there. He's at the back of the elevator. I stay up at the front, right by the things, push my room. The door is opening, and as I start to take a step out, he grabs me, pushes me back, so he can run out in front of me. I mean, that was kind of the attitude of the place. The airport? You did not want to go there. Because they used their little suitcase carts to hit people's feet. I had to turn around and yell at someone because he kept hitting me in the heels. There were no lines. It was mob scenes in front of all the counters. Whoever could push the hardest and worm their way in. I had never seen anything like it. And I thought, when Christians don't submit to the authorities in their lives, that is how the world sees us. Unkind selfish and troublemakers. It's not attractive to watch that. People who think the rules don't apply to them, and it's not attractive to an unbeliever to see a Christian behave this way, and they like to grab onto that and wave that in our face. When we're submissive, this is when we mimic who Jesus is. Imagine, he says, submit to rulers... Jesus was the king of kings and he submitted himself to the rulers in the world. It's unbelievable to think about. Look at Mark 12 on your verse sheet. This is about Jesus with some of the religious leaders. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch Jesus in his words and they came to him and said, Teacher, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought him the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. So Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus said, was submissive. He paid taxes. And we know from his life that when he was unjustly accused and arrested, he submitted to the Roman soldiers. When he was unjustly beaten and slandered, he submitted. So we want to stop here and take a breath and say, does this mean we should never oppose governmental authorities in our lives and I want to look at Peter's life again the very one telling them to submit there was a time in the book of Acts when we see that he was arrested for preaching and for teaching and healing and the authorities didn't know what to do with him and they finally brought him out and they ordered Peter not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore look on your verse sheet here's Peter's answer Then the leaders called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now Peter was submissive in that he let them arrest him. He let them put him in jail. He came and stood before them. But when it came to something that went against the will of God, Peter said, I can't obey what you're telling me to do. When man-made laws conflict with the laws of God, we obey God rather than man. A great Old Testament example of this would be the midwives in Egypt. Pharaoh said, kill all those firstborn, I mean, kill all the male children that are being born. And listen what it says. The midwives feared God. And so they did not do as the king commanded. There's a good example. In Peter's time, I mentioned that the Christians were accused of being disloyal to Caesar. That was because they would have people um, take incense, a pinch of it, and burn it before either the statue of Caesar or some kind of thing like that and claim that he was Lord. And that would be something the Christian wouldn't do because Jesus was their lord so they would disobey that here's what's amazing to me about peter telling them whatever authorities in your life you submit to them who was the authority when peter was writing this nero that's an amazing thing that peter is still able to say in all confidence this is our calling before god why do we submit Verse 13, it says, for the Lord's sake. In the verse in front of it, it said, live in a way that brings glory to God. And so one way we do that is by submitting to governing authorities. That's a glory to God. And uh, it's so much easier, I think, to do that when we realize, when I'm being obedient here, I do it for God's sake. That makes us paying taxes a little easier and some of the other things that we do. If God established these institutions, when we submit to them, we are submitting to God. It's for the Lord's sake. Secondly, in verse 14, to preserve order. Peter says, it encourages, the government will encourage good conduct and discourage bad. Punish the wrong, commend the right. And we have to look around and say, well, Fallen man doesn't always do a good job of this, and that's absolutely true. But it would be a scary place if there was no authority trying to maintain justice and punish the unjust. I thought it was interesting, in the Old Testament, Daniel was speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar. Look on your verse sheet. And we learn about this same principle even from the Old Testament. Daniel says, You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. But the king got arrogant and the king got prideful. And so that can happen even with someone that God puts into a particular place. And so look at the next thing. When God speaks to the king... He says, The living must know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Since officials receive their power from God, we are called to obey them. In fact, look at what Jesus said to Pilate in John 19. This is right before he was crucified. Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, we have an obligation. Look at the next verse. And I confess that I, I don't do this nearly enough. I urge you, Timothy says, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. One great time to do that, I'll put a little plug in. The church is always open on the National Day of Prayer, first Thursday in May. It's a time when God's people... Do what Timothy says here and pray for our leadership so we will have peaceful, godly lives here. And then finally in those verses we read, it says that when we are submissive to government, we silence those who are ignorant about spiritual things. I thought of a tongue twister. Submission silences slander. God uses our submission to silence slander. Slander. And the actual word for um, silence in that verse is the word muzzle. This is the same word used when Jesus would get the Sadducees to be silent. When he silenced a demonic spirit. When he stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's the same word there. That word muzzle means to prevent someone from speaking. When we're obedient and we demonstrate that to others, we avoid condemnation by muzzling those who are ignorant about God's truth. That's our calling. Okay, what about in the workplace, the Christian conduct in the workplace? In America, we don't have slaves and masters, but I want us to think about the principles we are going to look at here. They apply to the workplace. They apply to committees you're on. They apply to volunteer work you do. These principles are from God. I want to tell you a little bit of history first. Slavery was uh, a way of life in the Roman Empire. There were, at the time of Peter, probably over 60 million slaves. The reason for that is Rome conquered a lot of nations. So when they conquered, they brought you in, and you were theirs, and you were a slave. If you had debts you owed, you became a slave. If you were born of a slave, you stayed a slave. So pretty soon, their country was being run in large part by slaves. They were involved in every occupation, from manual labor to professional positions of doctors and people that um, were in professional high positions. So I read one man that said, most all of the work being done in Rome was done by slaves. The Romans took this attitude of, we have ownership, so therefore we get to be idle. And so you can imagine, these slaves weren't um, ignorant people. A lot of them were trained to be able to carry on the responsibilities to keep that country running. So there were a lot of them. In verse 18, when Peter uses the word slaves, it's a word used for household slaves or household servants. Not all slaves were treated poorly, but here's the reality, even if they were treated well, they had no legal rights and they were considered things and property. They were a people that justice ignored. In fact, look at this quote from someone living at that day. Whatever a master does to a slave, undeservedly, in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law. In other words, whatever he decided to do with his slave, that was just and that was lawful. So, picture your life as a slave. You don't have legal rights. You are considered property. You can get treated however you want. And then into that situation comes Christianity. And for the first time in their life, a slave realizes every man is precious in the sight of God. Can you imagine what that did to a slave? No wonder the early church was filled with slaves. In fact, the greater part of the early church was filled with slaves. It was the only place in society where they were told they were equal and equally loved by God. What a great thing for them. Now, here's the danger, though. Well, let me say this first. I thought about this. It would be possible for you to be involved in a church and be a slave and be put in a leadership position and your master be under your leadership. Wouldn't that be something? But can you see the danger that might happen? A slave might develop an attitude. Hey, I'm, I'm as good as you in the eyes of God. I think I won't obey you anymore. Or I think I'll run away from you. Or I think I'll talk about you and slander you behind your back. Or a Christian slave might have a non-Christian master and think, I'm better than you. I don't have to obey you anymore. God loves me. And so Peter's going to say, Okay, slaves, you know that word submit we've been using? It applies to you. It's part of my plan. As a slave, that's a Christian. How could they do that? How could they submit to some master who's unjust and cruel? And I wrote on your um, outline, We approach each day trusting ourselves to God who judges justly. They don't expect their master to judge justly. We don't expect our employer to judge everything justly or a committee head or whatever the circumstance might be. We entrust how we behave to our God who judges justly. This is what Peter uh, tells them that Jesus did and he begins to go into um, using Old Testament verses to show about the unjust suffering of Jesus. Now, why did he do that? Why did he wait to do it here? Because what an encouragement to the slaves to think about, Jesus suffered too and he understands my suffering. He sympathizes. He meets with me. He'll comfort me. That was um, raising who they were in their eyes as slaves by the fact that Peter would say, even your Savior suffered unjustly like you. We must believe, as Jesus knew, that there's nothing man can do that can take away the future justice that will be done in our life. Look at Psalm 11:7: "For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. upright men will see His face." Okay, Peter goes on to teach them, you have to submit to any kind of master, the good, the bad and the ugly. When you do, two things will happen. First, you'll become conscious of God. Look at verse 19. It's commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. I I just love that. Hey, how often do we cry out to God when our days are easy and comfortable? Not too often. He's saying, hey, you'll be aware of God. When you endure injustice, you'll think about Jesus. You'll be needing God. You'll be aware of God's presence and His pleasure. He says he sees that as a good thing. And you'll be aware of His will. And so our attitude and our actions will be covered by the grace of God. That is a great thing. Secondly, he says the slave who submits will be demonstrating their calling. Look at verse 21. To this you were called... Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Part of being a Christian is the privilege of serving God faithfully when it's hard, when it's unfair. We do that. We, we imitate Christ when we do that. Suffering is part of our calling only because it was first part of Christ's calling. Jesus says, "Follow my example," and we might do well to remind ourselves that it was our sin that caused his suffering. Peter wants to remind the slaves of that very thing, and so he takes verses from the Old Testament, and I love that he takes the language of the Old Testament prophets, prophets to discuss the suffering of Christ, how he bore their sins. Even though Peter walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, witnessed these things in Jesus' life, he knows nobody described the suffering of Christ better than Isaiah and people in the Old Testament. And to me, that's a huge statement about the inerrancy of the Word of God, the scarlet thread that starts in the Old Testament and goes all the way through to the New. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Sheep follow their shepherd. And in this case, when we follow Jesus, that means we will suffer. But what did he end with there? We don't have to fear that because we have an overseer of our soul. I love that phrase. An overseer of our soul. He's the good shepherd and a good shepherd knows every danger that his sheep is in the middle of. He oversees our soul. Okay, Peter moves on to a Christian's conduct in marriage. Um, I love going to the weddings that Ted does because he he always starts by telling everyone in the congregation, marriage is God's idea. God loves love. This is God's idea. And then Ted will say to the congregation, do you want to know what kind of a relationship Jesus Christ wants with you? Look at this couple. The intimacy and the love that they share for each other That is to represent what Jesus wants with us. What a beautiful thing. On your outline, we are to live together in a way that demonstrates the love and sacrifice of Christ. How do we do that? Okay, what's the word that's in through this whole chapter? Submit. We do that. There's that word again. And I want to remind us, it didn't just show up. It isn't just a curse God's put on women. This whole chapter was all about both men and women are to submit in this world. That represents Christ. Christ submitted. We walk that way. Um, And so Peter says, we expect all believers to exercise submission in all these different situations. What does it look like in a marriage Um, I I always have this picture of when Ted and I first got married, we had not been married very long. We were in this old house that he had, and it had this old kitchen that everything was outdated. And I can remember making dinner one night, and then he left the room, and he was sitting on the couch on the edge. I can still picture where he was, reading the paper, just like you see in a movie. And uh, I'm in there doing the dishes. And I remember thinking, I don't want to do these dishes. And so I went out there, and I stood next to him, and he's sitting sitting there. And I stood there a long time until he finally noticed me. And he looked up, and I said, I don't feel like doing the dishes. And he barely looked up and said, well, you have to. (laughs) And I remember going, oh. Went back, and and now we laugh about that because we both had a lot to learn about submission. I thought it meant doing things I didn't want to do, and Ted thought it meant not having to do things that he didn't want to do. (laughs) What is submission? If we go back and reread everything we just read, we will realize it involves commitment, patience, endurance, humility, kindness, holiness. That's what he's talking about in this whole chapter. And then we also see that God gives people different responsibilities so that order and peace will happen. And in order for that to happen, submission has to be a part of it. In marriage, it's no different. We are given different roles so that peace prevails so that it's not chaotic, so that God will be witnessed in our marriage and that God will be glorified and people will come to a wedding and see this is about God. People are looking at our marriages. I read one quote that said this, because God in his sovereignty has ordained human life so, Christians should fit into the divine arrangement and submissively fulfill their appointed functions. Submission is about a wife understanding the roles are different and not fighting against it. And her role is to understand that God has called the husband to lead the family. Now, this is much easier to do when a husband is loving, sacrificially, As Christ loved the church. That's why a healthy marriage involves two people doing their parts that God called them to do. But Peter wants to make sure that they don't think, what if one of the spouses isn't? Doesn't that give me a free ticket to get out? And Peter says, now, your husband, if he's not saved and not walking with the Lord, can be won over to Christ by your submissive, behavior in your marriage peter's words were important for these people to hear back then because they could be walking away from their unsaved husband but the gentle behavior of a wife peter says could bring him into the kingdom and we can't do that if we're expecting our husband to fulfill our lives We can't do that if we're putting our hope in a man to make us happy. Peter says in these verses, the godly, submissive women put their hope in God. They expected God to complete their life. They didn't put that on their husband because he's never going to be able to do it. And that's how they began to change who they were inside. Peter says the result is purity and reverence, inner beauty. Gentleness, holiness, and here's words Peter didn't use. Nagging, bitterness, resentment, frustration, fussing, drama. You know what emotion holds hands with those things? Fear. Peter says in these verses, when a marriage is done right, fear is not around. A husband has the high calling of loving his bride as Christ loves the church. And I love that because it's not all about the woman only having responsibilities. We each have responsibilities, and guess what? They relate to Christ and the church. I think that's exciting. Look at um, Ephesians 5 on your verse sheet. Here's the wife's role. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body, of which He is the Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy. Together, a couple represents Christ. Together, they're loved by God equally. This is a privilege. And I like to tell young couples that think, We don't want to go through the whole marriage thing. That's just a social institution. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a thing we have to do. Then we want to get to the reception. This is an opportunity to present the gospel to a whole bunch of people who don't go to church, to a whole bunch of people who don't understand that that relationship is a demonstration of Jesus' great love and sacrifice for us. What an opportunity a marriage is. I want to look at one last verse where Peter sums up everything we just talked about. How is a believer to behave in this world? Look at verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. On your outline, in all social relationships... Our conduct should spring out of our reverence for God and our desire to do His will. To do His will. And when we do that, that's when this little light will shine. There will be great blessings when we obey Him. Let's pray. We love You, Father. We thank You that um, all things You've instituted on earth are so that we might know You more and You might be glorified. And I pray that You teach us how to do that. Teach us how to walk in Your Spirit, that You would receive the glory. In Christ's name, amen.